following message is from Christian Life Austin. For more information about Christian Life, visit clcaustin.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Now listen, if you came to just sit today, you're not going to get to do that. Because today is Palm Sunday. And I almost brought about a thousand palms today, palm branches, to throw out at you. But I thought you thought we was playing dodgeball and you might throw them back at me. But this is Palm Sunday. Now, listen to me. Jesus Christ endured the cross for the joy that he saw beyond it. The joy was us. We need to look back at the cross and see the Savior that died and have joy today for him because he came to save us from our sins. I want us to clap our hands big right now and say, I will join the procession. I really will. It's a, it's a great day. It's a great day. And I love to preach during this season. And I trust to have something that's decent enough for you today because you have spoiled me with your coming to church. And I hope I have spoiled you with the word of God. Because I want us to learn every time we come. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach and preach some things today that are very important to the church and very, uh, very mighty for the kingdom of God. We're doing a series called The Road to Redemption. We're finishing it today. There it is right there. The first week, uh, Dr. Phil was here and talked about John 3.16. And then the next week, I talked about the thing that held him on the cross was the love he had for us, our value to him. Then last week I talked about the grace of God. I talked about frustrated grace. I choose not to frustrate grace. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain. Aren't you glad his grace came? And today, today, I'm going to talk about make room for mercy. Make room for mercy. Stand to your feet all over the building. You're incredible people. I'm going to get right into the word of the Lord today. Did you enjoy that music? Was that good stuff or what? Wow. Wow. I see some summer moon folks over here. I see some summer moon folks over here. Next Sunday, summer moon's going to really be blowing up over there. Next Sunday, I'm going to bring some summer moon cards. I am. And I'm going to give them away randomly. So if you smile real big next Sunday, because you're here on Easter Sunday, you're liable to have two or three of them. I want you to come to church rejoicing next Sunday because our Savior is alive. He is alive. He really is. First Chronicles chapter 28 said, then David, David was a man after God's own heart, gave his son Solomon the plan of the vestibule, the porch of the temple and of its houses its treasuries, its upper rooms, and its inner chambers, and of the room, the oracle, for the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Hebrews chapter 9 said, And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had a golden censer, and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the table, tables of the covenant. How many of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark several times? All right, all right. Some of you, that's your only knowledge of what I'm going to be preaching about today. 
But how many understand what the Ark of the Covenant represents? It is the presence, the divine presence of the Almighty God. The Ark of the Covenant is the divine presence of the Almighty God. It's a representation of God with us in the Old Testament. So with that, I'm going to ask you to be seated and say, make room for mercy. There were three things in the ark. Three things made up the interior of the ark. One was a pot of manna. Manna was wilderness food. It was not gathered all the time. It was gathered six days a week and you had to get enough on the sixth day for the next day. But the manna fell from heaven. Manna simply means what is it? They didn't know what it was. They just ate it and they stayed, they stayed uh, uh, nutritioned for the whole 40 years. But if it wasn't gathered at a certain time, the Bible said it melted. The sun waxed hot, it melted. But here's something you need to know. When placed, when a part of it was placed under the mercy seat, it never melted. Because mercy kept manna from melting. And mercy will keep us from falling. Every tribe also had a walking stick. All 12 tribes had a walking stick. And one day they were fussing over who would be the righteous leader of all the tribes. And Levi had stood up and defended the righteousness of God against their own brothers. And so they were chosen, but the other tribes didn't like it. So Moses said, bring your walking sticks. Bring those things, one from each tribe. And so Aaron's rod came and all the other tribes brought their rods and they set them in front of the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. And the next morning, Aaron's rod had budded in number 17. It had produced blossoms and buds and full grown almonds overnight. And so the one that produced was the one that would be the spiritual leader. And then there was a table of covenant. That's the law of God. The Ten Commandments written on the Mount Sinai in the Lord's hand. So, the Ark of the Covenant had the Word. Say the Word. The Table of Covenant. And provision. Say manna. And miracles. Say the rod of Aaron. All right. I need you to know that. Now I'm going to dive into what I'm preaching. So today is Palm Sunday. Say hallelujah. 2,000 years ago, there's a lot of celebrating and praising went on this day in Jerusalem. It was what I used to call an old-fashioned brouhaha, a hullabaloo. It was unreal. John Lennon, you recognize that name, said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus in 1962. Yeah, he did. But where are the Beatles today? They're pretty much gone except for Paul McCartney, and I think he's, he's living on some kind of thing that makes him keep walking and keep playing. But Jesus is the most popular figure to ever walk this earth. Jesus is the most awesome figure to ever walk this earth. Jesus is the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. You know, Brian Epstein was the manager of the, of the Beatles and when they started in Liverpool back in the early 60s, he hired college girls and high school girls. He paid them big money to go to meet the Beatles coming out of a, a, perhaps a hotel or out of a bus or off of a stage. And he paid them to faint. And he paid them to shriek and scream. And he paid them. 
Then he paid movie actors, he paid actors to be EMS people and to be policemen. And he paid people to drive EMS vehicles to take these girls that were passing out because the Beatles were there. And they'd run them to the hospital and they would arrest some people and take them to a jail. And he caused such a furor and such an anomaly of excitement that by the time the Beatles came to America, history was already being made. And so the American girls had to act like the British girls and they had to be the same because the anomaly was already running rampant. Can I tell you something? When Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day on Palm Sunday, he didn't have Brian Epstein as his manager, but he had people who had been healed. He had, been, had people who had been delivered. They had bought, bought palm branches all the way from Jericho a 34-mile round trip. Jericho was 17 miles away. They brought anything they could to wave. They even put their own garments under the, 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 the feet of the coat that he was riding. These were not hired praisers, for they truly thought that this Jesus riding on this coat that had never been ridden was here to overthrow the Romans and the Jewish Sanhedrin. And they should have noticed his manner of transportation, though, a donkey, not a white horse like a general. Hosanna was shouted, which means simply save us now. The garments that were laid beneath the feet of the donkey represented their, their, their identity and represented their social class. It was, we're putting all that we have beneath you. It was a glorious day. It was Sunday. It was Palm Sunday. And how did we get here? I want you to listen to me right now because I'm fixing to take you on a little journey. And you can say amen when you want to, or you can take notes if you like to. But I'm going to take you on a journey. David in Acts 13, 22 said, was a man after God's own heart. And David was crowned king after 40 years of leadership of Saul, the first king of Israel. King Saul, folks, never inquired of the Ark of the Covenant. When the Israelites lost it to the Philistines before Saul was appointed or anointed king, under Eli's reign, who had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas, who went out to fight the Philistines one day without the ark. The Israelites never went to battle without the ark because when people, the enemy saw the ark, they were fearful and they ran away many times without one arrow being fired or without one sword being drawn because they were so afraid of the presence of the Almighty God. And Hophni and Phinehas were defeated that day because they lived corrupt lives. And so when they were lost 4,000 people, they went back and said, you know what? We might ought to get the ark. And they went back and got the ark, but they didn't get it for the right reason. They got it as a magical handle, a magical tool. We've got the ark now, and so we have the ark. We're going to win the battle. But they didn't. They were discomfited. They were thwarted. They were whipped, beaten severely by the Philistines and to a point where the Philistines even took the Ark of the Covenant away from the Israelites. Now, it didn't work well for them because everywhere it went, the men were smitten. Every city it went to, the men were smitten. Everybody in town had the same disease. You'll have to read that for yourself. I'm not going to preach about it. But everybody, everybody had the same disease in the town, and they finally said, we got to get rid of this. So they put it on an ox cart, put it behind two oxen, and said, go home. And the oxen, oh, you got to get this, the oxen didn't have anybody to lead them back home. 
but because they knew what they were carrying innately. Because they knew something was behind them that was holy. They started headed back to the city of God. They started coming back to the precious place of God's presence. And they stopped at Beshemesh on the border. And the men there uncovered the ark, took the lid off, kind of like the ark, of, kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they were smitten. 50,000 plus people died when they took the lid off the ark because you can't see the law. You can't see the miraculous. You can't see the pot of manna unless you look through the mercy seat. Hallelujah. Oh, I'm gonna preach a little bit today. I feel this. And so the oxen said, well, this is not the place. So they just kept going and they finally got back to where they needed to be. Eli, when he heard his sons had died in battle, wept. But when he heard the ark was taken, he fell over backwards, break his neck and died. That's sad. But when Saul came to power, he did not seek the ark of the covenant. It was hid and taken to Abinadab, a priest's house. And there it languished for many, many years. Because Saul trusted his own strength. He trusted his own army. And after a 40-year period, he was slain in battle at a place called Gilboa. And David was the newly anointed king. And David served for 40 years. And immediately, he desired three specific things, and he asked for them. Number one, I want to conquer the city of Jebus. I want to make it a city of peace. And he did that and called Jebus Jerusalem. And the second thing he wanted to do was bring the ark of the covenant home to God's place. And he did that. And the third thing he wanted to do was build a house for the Lord simply for the ark of the covenant, the presence of God. And when David did finally bring the ark home the right way on the shoulders of men, it was the first what I call triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And David danced. David danced. Many times when a king came to town, they hired buffoons. They were clowns. They were actors that would announce the coming of the king. He's coming. And they would do all kinds of tricks, kind of like Cirque du Soleil. They would do all that stuff and bring attention to what was coming behind them. But David did not have a buffoon. David was that buffoon <laughs> because he was not the main attraction that day. The presence of God that was following him was the main attraction that day. Can I tell you something in no uncertain terms? I am never the attraction in this house. The presence of God is the attraction in this house. Somebody needs to stand to your feet right now and clap your hands and say, that's what we want in this house is the presence of Almighty God. Yeah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. The glory was coming home. He pitched a tent on Mount Zion. He passed right by Gibeah. He pitched a tent on Mount Zion to house the ark. And he placed 24 hour a day praisers there, day in and day out, 24 seven, to continually worship the Jehovah God of heaven. And he rolled up the curtains on all sides of that tent so that the world, no matter if there's Philistines, Hittites, Gittites, whatever they were, could see and witness the glory of God. It wasn't hidden like it was in Moses' tabernacle. It was out there for everybody to see. 
And a side note, in Acts chapter 15, the conference at Jerusalem, the thing that the apostles declared that God would restore in the last days was not anything less or more than the tabernacle of David because it was a restoration of praise and worship. If you have come from a church that is quiet and has peace and doesn't want to make a noise, you're not in that place today. This house, this house, this house is going to restore the tabernacle of David. I trust before Jesus comes, we can be a 24-7 church that's magnifying the Lord and praising his name and honoring his goodness and his mercy and his grace forever. Somebody say amen to that. There's enough preaching right there to start a triumphant entry in this house right now. Gibeah under Saul's reign was a place where the priest sacrificed, no ark to pour the blood on though, a semblance only, but no fire, no mercy seat, because the ark of God was on Mount Zion, and the mercy seat sat on top of the ark. So David asked to build God's house, but was not permitted. He had conquered Jebus, he had brought the ark home, and God would not permit him though to build the house. He said, because there's been too much bloodshed. David was a warrior. He had slain a lot of men. His son Solomon was a man of peace, and peace had to build the house. So David built a spiritual house. He built a spiritual house for us to have as an example of what should happen in the real house. (laughs) He also gathered all the material for his son Solomon to build God's house. They cut the cedars in Lebanon. They brought all the stones there. And when Solomon put it all together, there was not a sound of a hammer now the sound of a saw, it was the quietest thing that had ever been built because David had cut it just right before it ever got to be built by Solomon. But in Psalms 24, David built this spiritual house and here's what he said, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. Think about it. The essence of those verses is simply this. Here's the spiritual connotation of what should happen in the real house. Lifting up one's heads is lifting up our thoughts. And lifting up one's doors is our hands. When you come into the house of God, you need to lift up your thoughts and lift up your hands. The house of God should be a house of praise. It should be a house of thanksgiving. It should be a house of supplication, a spiritual house of praise. David's temple was a spiritual temple. It was one of head and hands. The king of glory will come in for God inhabits the praises of his people. The point is this, when you're in over your head with something and you can't get out of it, lift up your head, lift up your hands, and the king of glory won't come and bring you out. He'll just come right in where you are. (laughs) How many times have you been in a situation you couldn't get out of? You say, how do I get out of this? And God said, why don't you lift up your head and start thinking about me? Why don't you lift up your hands and start praising me? And you don't even have to move from where you are. God just comes where you are and saturates. Oh, I feel the Lord here right now and saturates your heart and touches you with his presence 
Nothing like the presence of God. So David told Solomon in the text, make room, son, for the mercy seat. He didn't call it the ark. He called it the mercy seat. Everybody say, I love mercy. mercy. Say, I need mercy. mercy. And I'll say this by myself. We all need mercy. We all need it. Everybody here needs mercy. Everybody say, God is merciful. merciful. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. It's the Lord's mercies that were not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Mercy seems to be the fulcrum of what God desires here. In Micah, Micah 6 and 8, he has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Mercy's in the middle. Let's talk a little bit about mercy here. The nine Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful is number five. It's right in the middle of all the nine. And they all shall obtain mercy. It's the only one that you give that you get back exactly what you give. Read the Beatitudes someday. If you give mercy, you're going to get mercy. If you're poor in heart, you'll inherit the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. But the rest of them all get something different. But when you give mercy, you're going to get mercy. Turn to somebody right now and say, I give you mercy. In Luke chapter 15, a parable of a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son is, a, is, a, is about celebration. Neither sheep nor coin, though, can repent. But the parable aims not at calling sinners to repentance, but at calling the righteous to join in the celebration of something being found. Whether one joins the celebration is all important to what it reveals. Whether our relationships are based on merit or based on mercy. Somebody has to prove themselves to you or you give them mercy. People who find God's mercy offensive cannot celebrate with the angels when a sinner repents. So they exclude themselves from God's grace. There's three things I've come to believe after 51 years of ministry. Life is difficult. God is merciful. And heaven is sure. Everybody say it. Life is difficult. God is merciful. And heaven is sure. 262 times mercy is mentioned in the Bible. I love some of the adjectives with mercy. Lot chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 19 talks about Lot. He was saved from Sodom by magnified mercy. Solomon spoke of great mercy. Jehoshaphat, when he fought battles against the enemy, won because of enduring mercy. And Ephesians chapter 2, God who is rich in mercy. David said to Solomon, make room for the mercy seat, son. Fix up the house of God as glorious as you want. Put all the lily work you desire in that house. Bring in the gold where you want to put it. But please, 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 whatever you do, make a space for mercy because everyone needs mercy. See, the Jews built three tabernacles, the one of Moses in the Old Testament. When the priest came once a year and sprinkled blood seven times on the mercy seat, the fire would fall and the sins would be rolled ahead. However, God wasn't finished. So here comes Solomon's temple. And it took seven years for Solomon to build that precious temple. And it took a lot, a lot of money to do it. Better, more bountiful, more beautiful. Not a tent, but a house. Bigger, greater, more room. Showing people that God was into making things bigger in life. Making God's glory more plentiful. God's mercy more available. David said, I'm going to say it again. Make room for the mercy seat. And by God's design... Solomon made the cherubims that overlooked the mercy seat 18 feet high with 18 feet wingspans. 
It was like four times bigger than Moses' cherubims when they built the one in the wilderness. What I'm trying to say, the bigger the house, the greater the mercy. The mercy seat was the only thing in the ark that didn't have a measurement to it. Oh, my, 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 my. God's mercy is not measured. God's mercy is not hindered by 12 inches or 10 inches or, or 15 inches. It's unmeasurable, the mercy of God. And we are feeling that right now in this house, the unmeasurable presence and the mercy of God. You need his mercy. I need his mercy. We all need his mercy. Make room for the mercy seat. Ephesians 3 says, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think. God's love. God loves us to exceed. He loves to exceed his abundance. And when you think you've reached his, his abundance in your life, I'm trying to hurry. I don't want to be late, late closing today. God steps up and exceeds that abundance again and again. And let me talk to you. This is funny. I'm fixing to tell you something funny. When those Philistines stole the ark from Hophni and Phinehas and the Israelites, they took it to Ashdod, and they had a god there named Dagon. <laughs> And Dagon was the bad, bad man. He's bad, bad Leroy Brown of the Philistine. <laughs> and they put this innocent little old shitem wood overlaid with gold with a mercy seat on it. And the word and the pot of manna and the miraculous rod that budded inside it. And they put them together to spend the night together. They all thought they were both innate objects that nobody would be affected. But the next morning when they come to check, Dagon was on his face. He had fallen. <laughs> Not backwards, but on his face. I like that. Buried his face in the dust. And so they put him back up and propped him this time and waited one more night. And when they come back the next morning, not only was he flat of his face, but his hands had been broken off. And his head had to be, his head was discombobulated from his body. It was cut off. And the ark was just there saying, hello. Here's the point. Don't ever think that something of this world can even compete with the presence and the glory of God that we feel in this house every time we get together. Oh, I want to run. Ah, hallelujah. There is nothing, there is nothing that is greater than the presence of God. Our no God can stand against our God. I see in the last days a church without walls. No limits. Because God is in charge and heavens are opened. John measured the temple in Revelation, the altar and the house. But when he measured the outer court, God said, stop. Don't measure that. That court is reserved for the Gentiles. Throw away the measuring rod. You can't put a limit on what I'm going to do for my people in the last day. It's a revival. Somebody help me preach right now without limits. <laughs> You've come too late to tell me 
We've seen the best that God has. I'm like the governor at the feast that ran out of wine and Jesus turned the water into wine and he said, something's happened here. Most people drink until they're kind of drunk and then they give them a little watered down something. But somebody has saved the best wine till now, till now. I'm gonna tell you ever now that we have together until then, we need to come in here saying, our God is greater than any idol. Our God is greater than any enemy. Our God is greater than any power. Our God is greater than any disease. Our God is greater than any phobia. Our God is greater than any pandemic. You've come too late to tell me he heals his last person. You've come too late to tell me he saved his last soul. You've come too late to tell me he's given his last revival. That the best is behind us. That the best is behind us. That the best is behind us. That there is nothing better on our horizon. The closer I get to him, the better he looks. <laughs> and so they brought the tabernacle to Solomon's house that he had built. They brought the Ark of the Covenant into that house. It's in, found in 2 Chronicles chapter five. And they delivered it to the oracle of the house. Literally, the folks, they put the Ark in the middle of the room. It was the middle of everything. And then in, and in chapter five, verse 10, the Bible said, there was nothing in the Ark save the two tables. Here's what I want to declare now. The reason that says that is because when the Philistines stole that ark, they took out the miraculous because they wanted that. They took out the manna because they needed that. But they left the word because they didn't want that. And the world wants the miraculous and they want the provision. But this house loves the pure word of God. This house. Oh, I'm preaching to you right now. I'm telling you. Come on, you clap bigger than that. I'm telling you. This house wants the word of God. Amen. And then in verse 13, it came to pass when the trumpeters and the singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and the instruments of music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good for his mercy endures forever saying, then that, that, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. You got to get this. No miraculous, no provision, just the word. If the word of God cannot inspire you enough to magnify the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ, then we can't produce enough miracles. We can't produce enough manna. We can't give you enough. But when you can worship on the word. I know a man is not supposed to act like this on Palm Sunday, but I feel like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer wrapped up in one. I feel the Lord in this house because this word will never pass away. 
It is written. It'll never go away. Let me close. Let me close. Let me close. So the road to redemption is filled with love. It's filled with grace. And it's filled with mercy. But God cares for us. And let me speak to you about the difference in grace and mercy. This is the lesson I want to teach you today and I'll let you go home. There is a difference. I got a little illumination not long ago on this and I want to share it. Grace, folks, is simply getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve his favor. We don't deserve his forgiveness. We don't deserve his love. But mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what we do deserve. We sin after receiving grace. We're not sinless. We stumble. We fall. We get up. We stumble again. We fall. Grace, folks, is our vanguard. It's salvific. It brings salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we shall live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. That's grace. Grace is our salvation. By grace you're saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's our vanguard. It's the thing that meets us first. But mercy is our rear guard. It keeps you on the path of grace. Brother Mark, Brother Mark, quit taking notes a minute and run up here, would you? Right quick. I want to do something. I want to do something, sir. You don't know this is happening. You don't know this is, it was coming. I want you to do something here. Okay, Mark Palazzolo is a wonderful human being. The grace of God has saved his soul, redeemed him, purchased him. But he's on this journey. Now, grace says, wow, I'm going to show you favor. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to show you goodness. I'm going to show you every day how great I am. But he's got a cousin that walks behind you. Named Mercy. And sometimes Mark might forget the promises that Grace made. And need a little help. Mark, I want you to kind of walk, but waver a little bit. Walk slow, but waver a little bit. You know, just kind of waver. You know, just kind of, you know what I'm saying? Just kind of waver. Mercy's here to say, straighten up. Mercy's here to say, keep going. And Mark can turn around and said, but hey, hey, I messed up yesterday. I had a bad day yesterday. And Mercy says, I don't remember that because I was just born today. Amen. I'm not reusable. That was Tuesday. This is Sunday. My mercies are new every morning. So Mark, keep walking straight. I'm here for you. And when you get out of line, I'm just going to keep you straight. I'm going to give you. Mercy. 
every morning. That's the difference. Grace is forever, but mercy is enduring. And so when Mark leaves this stage today, if he doesn't wobble down the steps and walks right, when he leaves this stage, something's going to be following him. David said, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What makes that? Was it grace or mercy? It was mercy because mercy keeps you in line with the grace that God has given you. David said, make room for mercy. Don't throw mercy off. Mercy's here for you. Amen. It doesn't give you what you deserve. It gives you another chance and another chance and another chance and another chance. And some of us need about 490 of those every day. But it was Jesus that said, forgive seven times 70 in a single day. And if he told his disciples to do that, how much do you think he's going to forgive us? Somebody help me right now. So could you not, could you not celebrate with the people at Palm Sunday? They were just like us. They were just like us. 37 miracles are known throughout the Bible that he performed. Could you not celebrate like they did? Could you not stand to your feet right now and get your hands in the air and say, I love you, Grace, Lord, but I'm so glad you put mercy on my backside to keep me walking in the state of grace in my life because I didn't get what I deserved. I got more than what I deserved. I got more. Mercy will keep you walking in the line of victory. So there they are. Grace found a subject in three and a half years. Blind eyes, deaf ears, crippled legs, dead to life, possessed man of Gadara, leprous man, woman of Tyre and Sidon, had a possessed daughter, a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, 5,000 fed with five and two. Why are they here, you ask? Mercy brought them to the Christ saying thanks. Because literally... John 1:14 said the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So what was riding on that coat was the New Testament Ark of the Covenant. What was riding? And mercy was at the top. And Jesus went to the cross to not only give us grace, but to bring us mercy every day. Every morning. Brand new. Clap your hands real big. Rejoice in the Lord.